Good morning. Really, last week and this week, the music is phenomenal. As somebody who uh, comes up and has an opportunity to preach, and when you have music like that ahead of you, uh, hopefully it kind of gets you as the congregation ready to hear the message from God's word. So when we sang, may all my days bring glory to your name, that really has a lot to do with today's, today's sermon. We're teaching on a doctrine called perseverance or perseverance of the saints. And uh, it, it has just amazed me as I studied, the more I studied, the more I realized how pervasive in Scripture this is. And the other thing that, that grabbed me that I had never really made a connection with before, and hopefully after this morning you'll get it too, sanctification and perseverance go hand in hand. They are very much related to each other. And that's very encouraging. Let me, now if you don't have a handout, there's some in the back. And the handouts, I've changed the format a little bit. They're loaded with uh, some of the key points that I'm trying to make this morning. So if you have one, uh, you can follow along. Uh, if not, go ahead and grab one. Um, before we get started, let me, let me pray. And let's ask the Spirit to help us as we work through some passages today. Father, uh, we come to you with hearts that are so glad, and we have peace. We have peace because Jesus came and died for our sins and reconciled us to you. And he rose from the dead, and he demonstrated power over sin and death, and that power is now with us. So we thank you for that. Be with us. Have your spirit working in me and everybody here this morning to help make your word happen in our lives and to bring you glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A quick little review. Last week, we used a foundational passage in this theme of perseverance, and that was Romans 8, 28 to 30. In that passage, it says the following, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And what we did is we laid that chain of events out, and we said there's now a couple of things in between that he didn't mention in this passage, but are mentioned in other passages, 
and I've listed those out there. So God foreknew or foreloved us. He predestined us. And in this passage, it says we're predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And then we were called. And there was a general call, an effectual call. And then there's regeneration. We were caused to be born again. We express faith and repentance. We become justified. We're adopted into God's family. We go through a process of sanctification and eventually glorified. And we're like Christ. That's the chain. Now, the key point from last week was all of this is from God. The bottom line, the decisive acts in this sequence are God's. And even the matters for which we're responsible, we are responsible to express faith and repentance and pursue sanctification. Even though we're responsible for that, they're only possible because of God's prior working. It's the acts of God that matter. Without them, not one of us would be saved. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of sets me back in my chair, okay? That is powerful, and it should create something in you that results in joy and peace. Like was said this morning, a rest in your heart. But what we're going to see is that that rest doesn't mean that you don't do anything. So we're going to talk about that. I want to use a passage to do that this morning from 2 Thessalonians. And I want to work through some more of the issues today that is our part in this chain that we're looking at. We have some responsibilities and we should not be slack in our thinking or our practice of the principles involved. And my hope is that what we look at this morning, I hope that it is going to be helpful. That it's an encouragement. And that if needed, it will spur and encourage both you and me in the fight. And I know if the Spirit's working in you, then just the right amount of whatever he feels is necessary will be applied to each of your particular situations and to mine too. So the passage, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now, I've broken that up on your handout as follows. There's a past, present, and future aspect to the passage, 
And there's God's part in our part stated in the passage. So God's part says God has chosen you from the beginning. Our part and God's part is sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And then God's part in the future, he called us through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he finishes with, so then, stand firm, hold to the traditions. That's our part. Now hopefully you can see that. We're going to work through each of those, those pieces as we go this morning. And our focus mostly will be on our part. But to start, just like we we saw last week, we looked at God's part. And verse 13 starts with that very thought. Now, Paul has just completed a discussion in the context of that chapter in Thessalonians. He completed a discussion on the end times and false teaching that had apparently been injected in the church. And he corrects the teaching in the first part. And then he ends the chapter with these verses that we're looking at this morning. And the contrast here is with the statement in the chapter that says, those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And that's why it starts with the word but. That's not you, church in Thessalonica. This is you, verses 13 through 15. And he starts with giving thanks because God has chosen you for salvation. And we looked at that that piece in the chain for a new predestined called, we're chosen. And he uses the word salvation here. Now just a a little pause here. Salvation is a comprehensive word in the New Testament. Actually, if you think about this sequence of past, present, and future, you've probably heard the phraseology, I was saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. That's what's going on here. And this, this term salvation, in modern Christianity today, it's used pretty much only to mean deliverance from eternal judgment. But scripture has a little bit different perspective on that term. Scripture emphasizes the completeness and comprehensiveness of salvation. God saves us from sin, misery, guilt, pollution, wrath, death, and corruption. In the Bible, the person who is being saved should be manifesting a liberty from the dominion of sin. Eternal life is the outcome of a life of overcoming sin and serving righteousness through Christ. Romans talks about this. Romans 6.22 says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, 
you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And we kind of just mentioned this last week, this term that's sometimes used in Christian circles is once saved, always saved. And then the implication is after that it doesn't matter. That's a bad implication. That's not correct. And we're going to emphasize that this morning. The statement is true, but the implication, if it isn't taught correctly or understood correctly, leaves you with the impression that nothing matters after that. Once saved, always saved. That's not biblical. As with every true believer, the Thessalonians were chosen by God for salvation. Election connects the ends, salvation, with the means, sanctification. We are elected to holiness. God chose us that we might be set apart. Those who are truly the elect of God will not fail to achieve that end by God's grace. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. God will not forsake the work of his hands. Where he's begun a work, he will perfect it until the day of salvation. You've heard that phrase before in Philippians, right? Those who are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit will persevere to the end. God does not contradict himself. The warning passages, now listen, this is very good, this is very important. The warning passages often seen in scripture do not negate the many promises that believers will persevere. There's another passage that reinforces that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Listen, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Now, if you have points in time in your life when you're kind of either in a bad spot in your walk with the Lord or you're just wondering and concerned, you need to go to this passage and read it. And some of the other passages we're going to talk about this morning. The next part of the, the basic passage this morning is God's part and our part, which says, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And this is the main point for today. God brings about our salvation by means of sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And to the degree that we cooperate or actively submit to God's purposes in sanctification, we will experience joy, peace, assurance, growth and grace and perseverance. That's our goal this morning. 
to realize and encourage each other to this end, to be used by God, <clears throat> to help strengthen, encourage, and exhort each other to a good grasp and understanding of that. And one of the most powerful ways to do that is with God's word. Each of us reminding each other of the gospel truth, the implications of that in our lives. God brings about our salvation by means of sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. That's the means. When we were chosen for salvation as the end goal, we began this process called sanctification. It's necessary as a means to obtain the end. The salvation which becomes our possession is through sanctification by the work of the Holy Spirit. God does have a part in our sanctification. When God caused us to be born again, born again really means, if you don't know it, born from above. Born from above, spiritual birth. And when that happened, we began a new relationship with God and a new relationship toward the world. And as the reality of our salvation relationships lived out, we're progressively sanctified by God's Spirit. You've heard that term before, right? Progressive sanctification. It doesn't happen completely at the time of belief. It's progressive. It causes the believer to be increasingly detached from the world and increasingly devoted to Christ. Peter has an interesting passage in 2 Peter that you may have heard before, but listen to it now with the concept of perseverance in front of us and sanctification. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 10. Now, for this reason also, applying all diligence, applying all diligence, that means we have to work at it, in your faith, now that's key, the very start of this whole sequence we're going to read starts with faith. In your faith, supply moral excellence, in moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Now listen. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, doesn't happen all at once, if those qualities are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Blind or short-sighted, that means if you're lacking them, you are not thinking correctly about being saved and the gospel. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. 
That's our part. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Working on these qualities, helping them increase through the power of the Spirit. Sanctification is never offered as an option. Don't let anybody tell you that it's an option, that it's optional in our lives. It's not. It's the will of God for all Christians. And he says that in 1 Thessalonians. He said, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he goes on and he says later in that passage, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Are you with me? You starting to get the idea here? Now, this is all over Scripture. It's everywhere. And a lot of times, if we're just kind of reading through, we don't pick up on some of these things. But if you focus on something like a topic like this, and you start looking at all the different points in Scripture, it's amazing. It bothered me when I was prepping because it is so broad and so much. I'm like, how... How am I going to figure out how to, how to share this with the congregation? Sanctification is a gift by Christ and his work on our behalf, but this gift places a heavy obligation upon us as believers. Ooh, an obligation. Is that scriptural? Yeah, it is. Look at Romans 8.12. Through 17, but 8:12 in particular. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. There's that adopted issue. So we're supposed to put to death the deeds of the flesh and reckon ourselves alive to God. And it's in total agreement with our new nature. So when we were born again, we got a new nature that gives us the ability to do this. Therefore, our reason, our wills, and our desires may be can be, will be, put to work in sanctification. Sanctification is related to keeping our relationship with Christ. But we can't do that if we don't nurture the relationship. If you remember, one of the, one of the times Jesus was talking with his disciples, he said, I, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That relationship must be there and must be maintained. So the Holy Spirit works upon us so that our wills and our minds and our desires give active consent to the truth 
revealed in Christ. Just as we receive justification by faith in Christ, so also we receive sanctification's progress by faith in Christ. It's ongoing faith in the truth of God's word that sanctifies us. And you've probably heard this over the last couple of years quite a bit. When the truth is believed, and when we really love it, it takes over all areas of our lives. Our relationship to God's truth goes beyond mere assent or agreement. What we're called to is to love the truth to the point where we're actually transformed by it. The truth becomes central in our thoughts, desires, and decisions. So we're commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. But that does not suggest that our activity in sanctification is a legal or lawful work. Actually, our progress could be called purely evangelical. That is, it's about the gospel. All of our sanctification flows from the cross. Now this is important, I think, to understand. That fact that this is gospel-based. And it kind of relates back to the passage in Peter. This is also why it's important to not tire of hearing the gospel. Whether it's here on Sundays, at home in our quiet time, or when we share it with others. Others, it's not like, oh, I've already heard that. I don't need to hear that again. You need to hear that every single day of your life. And some would say, you actually need to preach the gospel to yourself. The fear and trembling has to do with the awesome, awesome proposition that the God of the universe is intimately at work in our thinking, desiring, and willing. That's actually kind of amazing if you think about it. And it is fearful and wonderful thing to recognize that he is constantly willing to animate our obedience. It's also a cause for fear and self-watch to consider that our flesh may resist the work of the Holy Spirit. All the virtues produced in our life are ultimately generated by the character of Christ, reproduced in us by the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't rule out the principle of yielding ourselves to God for obedience. To me, this is almost like the hard part of our battle. It's a tension between what I do and what God does. Now, if we jump ahead again to our part in verse 15, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So we can see the Lord exhorts us to stand fast and not to waver, but many obstacles stand in the way of our sanctification. 
We have to lean heavily upon the Lord in order to lay aside our doubts and fears and stand fast. Stand firm means to be steadfast. Steadfast is a complementary term to being persevering. God's choice of us is the strongest incentive to action and perseverance. Scripture always joins privilege and duty. We were justified so we could be sanctified. Now we possess righteousness in Christ. That's what happens at justification. We're assured of love and favor. We can pursue sanctification with complete abandon. Somebody related to that earlier today in prayer or music. There's no cause for fear of failure. That's why it's critical we have a clear understanding of the gospel. We must have a clear understanding of the gospel and its implications. And if we do, it has a tremendous effect on how we live. When Paul used the word traditions here, he was not referring to man-made religious ideas that are not based on God's word. Paul warned against traditions. The truth of the gospel began as an oral message proclaimed by Christ and the apostles. Later, this truth was written down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it became Holy Scripture. That's what tradition means. God's truth was not invented by men. It was handed down from God to men. And each generation has the responsibility of guarding it and making sure it gets passed on. And if we stand, then we can hold. And it means to hold fast or to hold firmly. We're not to hold God's truth in a careless way, but grasp it firmly with power and don't let it slip. Each generation of Christians must receive the truth from others, guard it, and make sure it's kept intact for the next generation. And I guess I'm a little bit afraid that perhaps in America, that's one of the biggest things that has been a failure in the church. One generation is all it takes to get all messed up. And we're going to see that at the end of Joshua, when Brian teaches. And it's not easy to stand or hold because all kinds of forces around us want to move us from the faith. Satan knows how to use lies to oppose God's truth. The sinful trinity, this is interesting, the sinful trinity of Satan the world and the flesh all work against us. And that's why it's a battle. That's why there is a fight. That's why sanctification is important. It is what God will cause us to persevere. God will give us the strength and comfort and faith and truth we need to endure, to persevere, to be steadfast, to stand firm, to hold fast, to overcome. Those are all words that are in a variety of passages throughout all the Gospels and Epistles. We can do it. 
Now, you especially can do it and do your part in it if you correctly grasp the gospel, if you correctly grasp God's part versus our part, if you yield to the Holy Spirit. I say you, but remember what I said at the beginning last week, that this is as much about me as it is you, because this is part of what I was concerned about, how to finish strong, how to persevere. We all should have that concern. On the back part of your handout is a summary of the reasons why scriptures call for perseverance. Perseverance is necessary because the Christian life is a fight. We're called to be overcomers. We are to live out Christ's victory in our life and walk. It's a, it's a fight. It's a battle. So Paul brings that up to Timothy a number of times. Fight the good fight. It's a good fight, but it's a fight. From the day we're born, we are put into the fight and the battle. Sometimes, though, I know I would like to take a furlough and not be in the fight. And sometimes if we do that, and we do that for too long, that's not good. That's not right. It's a fight. Learn how to fight correctly. Perseverance is a necessity because it's a vital safeguard against presumption. Those who profess Christ are warned against the prospect of self-deception. God uses exhortation to perseverance to admonish and awaken diligence. We've heard that word diligence a couple of times this morning. And holy fear in the saints. It's God's way of instilling sober-mindedness. Clear thinking, right thinking. Perseverance is necessary because it's a revealer of your relationship with God's truth. Perseverance is necessary because it's genuine faith in action. There's a lot there. So, Alistair Begg, when he covered this topic, had three questions. First question he had was, well, to what then are we to look? And his response was, well, it's to whom do we look? And it is Jesus. If we were to continue on in the passage of Romans 8, and we go to verse 38, it says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Convinced. Not, I think it might happen. He's convinced we should be convinced. 
we need to set our sights correctly if we're going to persevere to the end. To what should we look? No, to who should we look? And it shouldn't be ourselves, because when we look at ourselves, we're just going to be discouraged, because even on a good day, you know, you know yourself enough that it's not enough. And even, even if you look at your brothers and sisters around you, depending on where they are, Sometimes it may not be a help. There's only one place, and that's to look at the Lord Jesus himself. And i got to tell you, sometimes I just don't do that. I either get caught up in the problem, or I get caught up in myself being the solution to something. And I need to be more focused on Jesus. I need to be focused on what it says in Hebrews 4, 14. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And if I remind myself, he's the author and he's the perfecter of my faith, he's the one on account of the joy that was set before him to endure the cross, and he sits at the right hand at the throne of God. And he did it in order that I would be forgiven and continue through my days. And he still intercedes for me today. And then he goes on and he asks the question, to what are we to listen? We are to listen to his word. This is why it's important to be in a Bible teaching church where the leaders and the elders will labor along with those who instruct our youth. Because it's the very word of God that, by which we're strengthened and we're equipped. It's God's word which warns us, God's word that guides us, teaches us, and encourages us. I put a quote in there from Alistair Begg, which I found interesting. He said, we don't read our Bible simply to find blessed thoughts or to get a good start to the day. We must read our Bibles because it is by the very word of truth that God's people are kept. We need to be in that word personally and corporately a lot. And third, he says, we need to keep close to his people that's us, other believers. Because God has determined it's our relationships with one another by which we're strengthened and equipped. Hebrews 3 says it. Hebrews 3 says, encourage one another. And then it goes on to say, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Believers are not living in isolation, but like sheep gathered together in a flock. Being a lone ranger Christian is not biblical. God has not only ordained that we will continue to the end, but he's ordained the means whereby we will continue to the end. 
And the means is he brings into our lives others for this very purpose, the fellowship of his people. That's what God has ordained. That's what he's designed. Our faith will not fail because God sustains it. Listen to this quote from Packer. It's, it's really good. You're not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Now, only believers could make that claim, but it's a good claim. So if we're going to persevere, we need to look to his son, Jesus. We need to listen to his word. And we need finally to keep close to his people. Now, as we get ready for scripture, there's some, some aspects of this that I think are useful and appropriate at the time of communion. And it's the word fellowship. Koyanania. Hopefully I didn't ruin that. <laughs> but you've heard that. Fellowship or participation. And there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 10.16. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a fellowship, a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a fellowship in the body of Christ? That's what we're going to do now. In other words, when we drink the cup and we eat the bread, we share in the benefits of the slain body and shed blood of Christ. We have a share in what death achieved. Fellowship, though, also, it's not just vertical, it's horizontal. It's a mutual bond that Christians have with Christ that puts us in a deep, eternal relationship with one another. Paul says earlier in Corinthians, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which probably means both a vertical union each of us has in Christ and a sharing together with other believers in the common union we have with each other. One of the best ways to represent that is communion. Doug talked about some of this when he was teaching in 1 John chapter 1. We have, he says in 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There it is again. Mutual, mutual fellowship. 